The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Good evening, everyone. We are live tonight from Liberty Plaza in Atlanta, near the state capitol, on the eve of Georgia's primary election. Now, there are several major races that we're keeping a close eye on. And, of course, Georgia was ground zero for the disgraced former president's scheme to steal the 2020 election. Tomorrow, voters will determine if Republican attempts to steal the next presidential election will be stopped. Polls indicate that the race for governor will likely be a rematch of 2018 between incumbent Republican Brian Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams. Abrams lost that election by the tiniest of margins and is running unopposed for the Democratic nomination this year. Now, from what we've seen so far in the political ads, Stacey Abrams is the star of the show in this election. All the Republican candidates, no matter what offices they're running for, are talking about her. How dare you, Stacey Abrams, attacking Butch Miller for writing the law against transgender boys competing in girls' sports. Chris Carr, Georgia's conservative attorney general. He's taken on President Biden and Stacey Abrams. It's not Stacey Abrams. It's Rhino Brian Kemp. Stacey Abrams and the liberal mob forced the all-star game to move. Ouchy, Stacey Abrams and the media. They all came after us. We've got to keep Stacey Abrams from becoming our governor and our next president. Wow, it'll be up to the next governor to stand up to the big lie. And there are plenty of Republicans pushing that farce, including in the races for Senate and Secretary of State. And in the race for the Republican nomination for governor, former Senator David Perdue is looking for vengeance for his 2020 Senate defeat, blaming his opponent, Governor Kemp, for allowing Democrats to, quote, steal our election. Today, Purdue said that he wouldn't necessarily accept the results if he loses tomorrow's primary. Are you going to accept the results of this election? Well, it depends on the fraud or not. This is a straight up election. I'm going to support the winner of this because my number one objective is make sure Stacey Abrams is never governor of Georgia. The former president's big lie in Georgia has also led Georgia to become ground zero for voter suppression. With its Jim Crow version 2.0 voting law put in place last year by Republicans using a baseless assertion of fraud. And Republicans, with the help from some in the political press, are now using the huge turnout in the primary so far to push a new big lie. That the record turnout, which is mainly from Republican primary voters, means that Georgia's suppressive voting law is not suppressive at all. Despite the fact that the voters that it was meant to harm most are not voting in contested primaries, meaning the real test for how the law affects them will come in November. Joining me now is Stacey Abrams, Democratic candidate for Georgia governor. And uh, Leader Abrams, thank you so much for being here. I, I have to start with that because I feel like a narrative is sort of congealing among much of the political press that comes from Republicans, but it is settling in even amongst some folks in my profession that because lots of people turned out, 857,000 so far and counting, that means that there is no voter suppression in Georgia. But I note, as I did in the intro, that it's largely, you know, substantially more Republicans. They're not the ones who have long lines. They get to breeze right through. They're not the ones who have suppression. And this is in-person voting. This isn't mail-in. What, what, what do you take? What do you make of this 
this new narrative? Well, I think the most important piece is to winnow it down to this. The equivalent of saying that more people voting means there's no suppression is like telling people that if you get in the water, there are no sharks. If more people get in the water, there are fewer sharks. That, there's no correlation there. Voter suppression is about blocking or impeding certain types of voters from participating in elections. And as you pointed out, right now, Republicans have the most competitive elections. But what we also don't know is what is the mail-in ballot rejection rate? What are the difficulties people are having? But we do have some very real examples of what this law precipitated. Spalding County eliminated Sunday voting, something that was used by a burgeoning African-American community to stop their participation in elections. We know that across the state, the change in state elections boards have changed how people engage. We know that people who would have voted by mail are having a difficult time doing so because of the wet signature requirement that you have to print it out, sign it, and then take a picture and upload it and send it back, as opposed to being able to simply fill it out and send the absentee ballot request and then send your ballot in. And so what is happening is that people are looking at one metric and trying to extrapolate an entire narrative. And the narrative is very clear. Voter suppression is not about stopping voting. It is about impeding certain voters from participating. And those voters, as you pointed out, are unlikely to be highly active in a primary. But that said, we do know that we are seeing outrage driving voters of color to the polls. And that's the other thing that we used to say, and I I said constantly, the antidote to voter suppression is voter turnout. They're going to try to make it hard. So the more of us who show up, we overwhelm the system with our presence. But to let them off of the hook for what they've done simply because they didn't do it as well as they thought is, I think, nonsensical. Well, and also because the law they put in helped some of more of their voters turn Absolutely. out. Well, that doesn't say there's no voter suppression against exactly. the other voters. It says they helped their voters. And anyway, well, uh, let, let's move on. You, um, they're taking a lot of heat from, well, from everybody. I mean, you, I, I've been, <laughs> when I get to these states, I always watch local TV because I just want to see what's on local TV. Well, it's all political ads, of course. And it was amazing to me that all the political ads featured you, even if somebody was running for dog catcher, they're like, but that's Stacey Abrams. I'm going to fight her from this dog catching spot. Um, you've also been getting a lot of heat from, particularly um, Brian Camp, but others about something that you said. And so let me just play it. This was something that you said at a Gwinnett County Democratic Gala. Here it is. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. Now, somebody's going to try to politifact me on this, so let me contextualize. When you're number 48 for mental health, when you're number one for maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages that are on the decline, then you're not the number one place to do, to live. I mean, find the lie. I mean, where's the lie? Why why do you suppose that has caused so much contretemps? I I think it was an artfully delivered. Uh, My point was a point that I've made many times and My passion in making this point is important because we are listening to Brian Kemp give give narrative about a record that does not reflect reality. The more I go around the state, the more I talk to people who are deeply in pain, who are concerned about the fact that just recently he has declined pandemic SNAP relief for 1.6 million families, families that are struggling to find the way to take care of themselves and their children, they're trying to find baby formula. He has said no to $120 million for those families. He struck $4 million from the state budget for HIV and AIDS protections. These are communities where we are number one in the nation in HIV diagnoses. And so my point is, 
well-intended, which is that for so many Georgians, this is not the number one place to be, but we have the capacity for greatness. And if people didn't splice the pieces they like and actually listen to my entire narrative, my point is that I want more for Georgia. I believe in our greatness. I moved here the first time because my parents brought me. I came back the second time because this is where I want to live. And I think there's a, a phrase in the, in the black church that I love. It's like, charge it to my head and not my heart. My heart is in Georgia. And there may have been a, a, a phrasing that I could have done better, but my intention and, my re, and the reality is true. And that is Brian Kemp doesn't care about certain communities in this state. And he has proven it by creating a criminal carry law letting people who have been convicted of felonies, who've been convicted of domestic abuse, carry concealed weapons, loaded concealed weapons with no permit, at the same time that Georgia is number nine for gun violence. We know that his behavior towards women, he is willing to eliminate abortion rights in the state that's number one for maternal mortality. And we know that the decisions he is making will hurt and kill women, especially black women in the state. And so for me, the issue is this. You can either listen to him fight about my record, I mean, my rhetoric, or we can ask him about his record. And Brian Kemp's record is a failed record of leadership, and it is time for him to retire. And, and I should mention that we did invite Brian Kemp on. We, we tried to get some Republicans to come on. Uh, he declined, or he, we, did, we did not get a yes from him. So he did have his opportunity to say what he needs to say. It's not just him. I mean, you, you've got David Perdue that's also out there, too. And I mean, his, the way he put it, because he also did try to, you know, talk about the fact that, you know, I don't think it matters where you're born. Lots of people, I know lots of New Yorkers that live down here. I have cousins <laughs> that live down here and I know, you know, they're from originally from Guyana. They're here. Um, but Purdue tried to go at you. Well, let me just play it. This is David Purdue. This is the other guy that's running for governor. Did y'all see what Stacy said this weekend? Said that Georgia is the worst place in the country to live. Hey, she ain't from here. Let her go back where she came from. She doesn't like it here. The only thing she wants is to be president of the United States. She doesn't care about the people of Georgia. That's clear. You know, when we saw in 18 what she did and what she said, oh, we're going to have a blue wave, we're going to do it with documented and undocumented workers. You know, I don't think a lot of people in Georgia understood that. When she told black farmers, you don't need to be on the farm, and you, she told black workers in hospitality and all this, you don't need to be, she is demeaning her own race when it comes to that. I am really over this. She should never be considered for material for a governor of any state, much less our state where she hates to live. I, I, I find it very hard to believe that David Perdue is the great advocate for black people in Georgia, <laughs> but he's gone back to some 1950s phraseology about demeaning uh, your race. Your thoughts? I, I think that regardless of which Republican it is, I have yet to hear them articulate a plan for the future of Georgia. I have yet to hear them talk about why they will not expand Medicaid and provide coverage to half a million Georgians. Just across the street at the Capitol, they passed a mental health parity law that will create parity in health insurance to get you mental health. The problem is 1.5 million Georgians don't have health insurance. We are number two in the nation for the uninsured, which means the poorest among us who are in the most desperate need of help are still being told by this governor and this Republican Party Party. We will not help you. You don't deserve our support. I will stand on my record. I will stand on my work and I will stand in the space where I have lived for I've been back for more than 20 years. And what I will tell you is that I love Georgia. I've been to every single county in the state. And what I hear from person after person after person is they just want a chance to thrive. And I challenge every Republican to stop focusing on a little bit of rhetoric and actually show me in your record where you are serving black farmers 
instead of suing to make certain they can't have access to the resources they've been begging for for 40 years. Show me where you are showing up in communities that are grappling with not only gun violence, but with hunger, and you're solving that problem. Tell me how you're going to make certain that families that need rental assistance will get it, because Brian Kemp has kept millions of dollars out of the hands of families in the middle of the pandemic. He has been willing to help companies, but never help their workers. And that, to me, is the record we should be talking about. I can apologize all day for my phrasing, but I will never apologize for my meaning. And that is that we mean to serve the people of Georgia and we mean to make Georgia better for everyone. And I want to lift everyone up. You know, the thing about I I do love Atlanta. It's a great city, but you it feels like a lot of the Republican rhetoric, not just here in a lot of states is speaking to one Georgia, you know, Kemp and Purdue. There's one Georgia they're speaking to and it doesn't look like us. And it, it, it feels exclusionary that like we're happy with what we have. Nobody who is who doesn't have money, no one who isn't wealthy, no one who isn't white is part of their Georgia. It's just to me as a person that's just visiting here. That's what sort of troubles me. Well, I think the challenge is even broader. They don't care about rural Georgians, regardless of color. They've allowed hospitals to shut down. Three hospitals have closed down during the pandemic. I met a nurse whose aunt perished because the the ambulance to save her life was going to have to take her to Alabama because Brian Kemp was too mean and too cruel to expand Medicaid. I've talked to white families who are desperate to be able to afford a place to live. And it's not just Atlanta. It's Augusta. It's Savannah. It's Macon. It's Albany. It's across this state where they can't afford to live, even if they're making minimum wage or just a little above that. They don't care about people who aren't already flourishing. If you've got enough, they'll help you get more. But if you need access, if you need support, if you need a hand, they will slap your hand away. And that's the problem in Georgia, that we have leaders who like to claim credit, but refuse to take responsibility. I will take responsibility for who I am and for what I do. And I want to be the governor who takes responsibility for lifting the state up to the greatness that we deserve. And, and I, I met you in, in 2014 when you were first starting out uh, registering voters, which is my thing. It's the thing I, I, I care about the most is voting and getting people registered. And I remember the whole cycle of you register them, Brian Kemp, when he was Secretary of State, knocking them off. You register them, Brian Kemp knocking them off. Are enough young voters, um, college students, voters of color going to be able to vote in November to have their say and to attempt to get who they want as governor? I believe we can. If you look at the numbers, yes, Republicans are outperforming Democrats in the primaries. But as you pointed out, they have hyper-competitive primaries. They're spending millions of dollars beating each other up and you know, calling me everything but a child of God. Uh, but what we also have seen is dramatic increases in Democratic turnout, especially among communities that four years ago weren't voting because they didn't believe it was possible. What we have shown since 2018 and certainly with 2020 and 2021, that it is worth investing. It is worth believing. And we're going to work hard to make sure every person who wants to cast a ballot can register, stay on the rolls, cast that ballot and have that ballot counted. I've worked for the last four years. I haven't been in office. So I've been building organizations to help people across the state paying off medical debts, but also making sure that their votes count in this election. And despite what Republicans are willing to do to win, what I am willing to do is make sure every voice is counted, every vote gets cast. And even if they don't vote for me, I'm going to fight to make sure our democracy works in Georgia, because that's what leadership looks like. Uh, Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for spending some time in beautiful, beautiful Atlanta. And we actually got a good day. We thought it was going to rain. We were a little worried, <laughs> but maybe, maybe you helped it bring back the sun. 
Thank you very much. I don't have to thank wish you. you good luck because you are you are going to be the nominee. So thank you very much. Thank we'll be watching. So much, thank you very much. All right. Coming up next on the readout, prosecutors here in Georgia are using Young Thug's rap lyrics to make their racketeering case against him. What about Trump? He's on tape trying to subvert the will of Georgia voters. Plus, this is the first time that we are seeing the impact of Georgia's restrictive new voting laws we just mentioned. And it is a preview of just how bad things could get this fall. And the Republican race for governor between Kemp and Purdue has turned into a proxy war between Trump and Mike Pence. And it sure looks bad for Trump. The readout continues live from Atlanta after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That was a twice impeached former president imploring Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to just find him the votes that he needed to win. Raffensperger refused. Tomorrow, Georgia voters will decide if Raffensperger gets nominated for another term. Running against him is Congressman Jody Heiss, who lies about the 2020 election and attended White House meetings in 2020 to discuss ways to decertify the Georgia vote in the House. Trump is looking for all the help he can get in the state because Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her team are investigating his infamous phone call with Raffensperger, as well as one that Senator Lindsey Graham made to Raffensperger on Trump's behalf. It's unclear exactly what charges prosecutors would pursue. A special grand jury is set to meet next month. But Trump should be worried. Willis just indicted two Atlanta-based rappers, Young Thug and Gunna, and over two dozen of their alleged gang associates on a Georgia state RICO charge. And an element of that case is Young Thug's lyrics, allegedly bragging about their crimes. In a letter to top-ranking state officials last month, Willis acknowledged that she was looking into a similar racketeering charge for the ex-president. And clearly she'd be able to use his bars in that call as well. Joining me now, Michael J. Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, who's now a partner with the Moore Hall Law Firm. And just found out that some good friends of mine from Georgia right. are friends of yours. And it, that's blowing my mind. I'm going to have to text them afterwards. Right. Thank you for being here. Glad to be with you. Let's talk about that, because I, I do find this interesting. I've been following the Young Thug. Uh, right. I, I was telling you I've been watching a lot of local news. The Young Thug thing is all over mm-hmm. the news. And what's interesting and odd about that case is that his lyrics are being used against him, his right. own words against him. Now, normally, if, if you're a rapper, you rap about maybe things you did in the past. You don't rap about your current. You don't That's say, right. this is what I'm doing right now. Let me sure. put a beat under it. 
But it feels like at least that's what Fonnie Willis is alleging that he did. Mm -hmm. In the case of Donald Trump, that is the same thing. Right. Without the beat under it, he literally called up and said, let me commit this crime real quick. <laughs> that's right. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Right. Do you do you see that kind of convergence there? You know, I, I think it's interesting that she's using the RICO statute. There's a discussion about it. She really had two ways to go with the Trump case. She could have taken a very sort of a rifle shot approach uh, at the case and used the tape. Yes. And I think we'd be far further down the road now. And maybe, you know, we'd be through with some of the appeals that are naturally going to result yeah. from this. On the other hand, when you take the RICO case, it just tells you that she's spreading out the net a little further. Yeah. Um, it, it's unusual to see it in this time. Type of case because really the the uniqueness about it is that the, the key figure was the president. If you take the fact that he was an elected official, if you just said he was a candidate, you yeah. may not be having the same type of discussion because was he sort of the, the head of the organization to move things right, right. and move the pieces? And I think you, know, you see those. And the thing that's interesting too is that you know you have a senator too. Let me just read what he said. He said, So, so look, all I want you to do is this I want you to find 11,780 right. votes, which is one more than we need. Because we won the state. Um, and then, you know, he goes through and he says, we won the election. It's not fair to take it away from us like this. It's going to be very costly. Then he kind of threatens him. He's like, you know, you need to reexamine it because, you know, these are crimes. Right. And so there is a threat involved. There is a specific request for what he would need to win. Then you have Senator Graham also calling Raffensperger. In your mind, just as a, as a lawyer looking at that, is that is that sufficient to form a RICO case? So I think the Graham call is almost worse because he was not a candidate in that particular election. Right. So he's trying to meddle in something where he, he has no real interest, except he wants to control the Senate. He's called at a buddy saying, can you do something about it? When you take Trump, and if you take the idea that he's, if he, if he was not a candidate, you know, and he's the president, that's the strongest part of her case, right? Yeah. Because he can threaten the, the prosecution or something else going on. Yeah. At the same time, it may be a weak link in the case because it may give him a reason to ask that the case be transferred to the federal court okay. or removed to the federal court. Because if he's acting as a, in his capacity as an elected official, he's a federal official at the time, there'll be motions back and forth to try to move the case so yeah. the the linchpin of the case may also it's you know become something of a, a of a weakness that she's got to battle through the appellate court let, let me just play really quick this is finally well this is on the other case this is on the this is on the young thug case this is what she's been saying in the media it does not matter what your notoriety is what your fame is if you come to fulton county georgia and you commit crimes and certainly if those crimes are in furtherance of a street gang that you are going to become a target and a focus focus of this district attorney's office and we are going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law i have to ask you just as an attorney sure is it more is it does it trouble you on a first amendment grounds that somebody's lyrics you know this is entertainment um, can be used to form a criminal case? Or do you think that there's something different about this particular case? I, I, I think that it's something that maybe could be used to paint a little bit of the picture. It troubles me to think from a First Amendment uh, perspective that that's something that they would serve as the basis for a conviction. Sure. Um, and I, I hate to see us moving necessarily in that direction. Yeah. If she's telling a story and she's got wiretaps and she's got witnesses and she's flipped some witnesses to talk about what went on in the street game. Yeah. And then she tries to say, yeah, they even talked about it here. That's a right. little bit different thing yeah. because yeah. it's sort of, it's not, it's sort of circumstantial. It's not really direct evidence of what went on, sure. but something that they could point to. Yeah. That gives me a little bit of pause. Just, it, you know, I'll worry a about A little that. bit, right. I, I was thinking the same thing because I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it's just, it's like, uh, because a lot of these, it's, 
it's purely fiction. You right. know, I, I break it to all y'all. A lot of this rap stuff, they say, they're making that up. Right. <laughs> they didn't do any of that. <laughs> but anyway, in this right. case, she's saying that he did. It's so great to have you it's here. Great Thank you very you. much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Great to see you. Great Michael pleasure. J. Moore, the other Michael Moore. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Still ahead. Tomorrow's Georgia primary will be the first taking place under Republicans' new voting restrictions, as well as under 2020 redistricting. Georgia Congresswoman Nikema Williams will be here next to discuss the implications for Georgia candidates and voters. We'll be right back. We have spent a fair bit of time talking about tomorrow and which way the dust will settle within the Republican primary. But the race is also a test for the state's Democrats, some of whom are finding themselves in new competitive districts. And the results of tomorrow's elections will run headlong into the state's restrictive voting laws come November. Joining us now, Representative Nikema Williams, who also chairs the Democratic Party of Georgia, and Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. I am very upset that I did not get the memo to wear that beautiful shade of blue. <laughs> I feel very left out. Um, but that, that two shot is gorgeous. You ladies look amazing. I'm going to start with you, Representative. It is interesting that you now do have in this state um, some people that are running against each other that normally probably would not. So Carolyn Boudreaux and Lucy McBath, who were two, you know, solid Democratic Congresswomen, now competing with each other because of redistricting. It's unfortunate, but yeah. those are the stakes, the hands that we're dealt with, with the redistricting, the gerrymandering in the state. We know that we showed the country Georgia is a 50-50 state. And when it came to redistricting, Republicans were hell bent on making sure that they redrew the lines to make sure that Democrats did not have an even voice and even say. So what they did was they made a new member of Congress, Lucy McBeth, who flipped the district in 2018. Lou Gingrich's district, not Newt just any Gingrich's district. district yeah. A black woman. Yeah. They gerrymandered her out of her district and made it a district that was not competitive after she won decisively a second victory in 2020. So here we are, and this is the hand that we've been dealt, and we refuse to allow the Republicans to tell us which members of Congress we're going to send back. And so now these two great Democratic women are running against each other in tomorrow's yeah. primary. And it's interesting because just watching their ads, you know, it's, it's, it's forcing Democratic-based voters to choose between abortion rights and gun reform, like because their their ads are very different. They're both very compelling. But I didn't even realize until we came into the meetings. I've been watching all their ads, thinking, "Oh, these are two great candidates. They're in the same race." So I, I wonder if that just complicates it more. Added to that, we still do have this restrictive voting law. And Stacey Abrams just said earlier, "You can cover it up all you want and say yes, lots of people voted, but that's lots of Republicans voting. That doesn't right. tell you what's happening with the laws." That's right, and we're seeing that all across the board. At the end of the day, just because it's, it's like making the argument saying, well, because people were able to escape from slavery, slavery didn't have an impact. Right. The bottom line is it absolutely has an impact. Even as we've been talking to voters, there's a sense of anxiety. What we're seeing is we're seeing down numbers, low numbers, really, when it comes to um, voting absentee, the right. ballot boxes, all of those things, all of those uh, voting tools that people had access that may or may not work a traditional nine to five job and, the num and, and, and they have access to being able to vote during the regular voting hours. And so I think we're going to we're seeing the impact. We're feeling the impact. We're seeing the impact, but we're doing the work. And then just because the numbers are coming up, I mean, that's reflective of people being determined and being upset right. about what is happening. That's right. Right. And we're expending resources, time and energy yeah. to try to offset 
this racist law that has been put in place to punish black voters for participating in the last election. It's like saying, you know, you have to jump over this hurdle. Now I'm going to raise the hurdle another two feet. And if you jump over and say, see, there's nothing wrong with the hurdle. The hurdle's fine. We've said all along, while we shouldn't have to organize our way out of voter suppression, we're going to do what it takes to make sure that our people have a voice in this electoral process. There's an interesting race. I mean, uh, you know, you know, I want to talk about Marjorie Greene, um, mm. but she has an interesting potential general election race. There's a black man who's running, and he's running. Ad- his ads are on almost more than anybody else. I actually else. went to high school with Did him. You go to high school in with him? Alabama. <laughs> it, it is so interesting watching his race. So he is. Let me find Marcus Flowers. That's his yes. name, Marcus Flowers. He's running these interesting ads that are all biographical. He doesn't mention yes. her. So if you didn't know any better, you would know right. he's running against her. But what's happening in his district, and I want both of you guys to comment on this, is now there are at least two majority black towns because of redistricting. If Marjorie Greene were to win re-election, she would now be representing a substantial number of African-Americans. That, to me, sounds terrifying for them. But Which is unfortunate. And the voters in that district, in the Cobb County part of that district, which used to be in David Scott and Lucy McBath's district, yes. they showed up during the hearings at the state capitol. They made their voices heard. They wanted to keep their community together. Like, this is a district that touches my district right here in Atlanta, Joy, and it sprawls all the way up to the Tennessee-Georgia line. So these aren't communities of interest. This is Republican gerrymandering at its best, where they have designed this state to make sure that they can control how many Republican districts are in the state um, representing Congress. It it feels, Latasha, like they designed a voting law to make it only easy for their voters to vote and then say, see, look, it's a great law for everyone. And then they've designed these districts to essentially take black voters power and shove it underneath somebody like Marjorie Greene, who has no interest in these people at all. It's I mean, how do you motivate voters when they're facing all of that? You know, Joy, even to say how egregious it is that when you look at the last census, right, 100 percent of the population growth in the state of Georgia were communities of color. Yes. And so somehow they drew this district and gerrymandered in such a way that whether they packed districts, which were they put districts, they put communities of color together or they cracked them right right, where they would split them up like what we're seeing in this case they were able to do that and actually come out of a map where they actually have more representation although a hundred percent of the growth have been communities of color and so what we have to do and we know this in the state of georgia that's why this gubernatorial election is so important we have got to take over the state of georgia state politics from the top of the ticket on down because we cannot continue to be punished because people participated we're seeing that they have just been just stilling they're yeah. literally creating a process so that they can steal the election. Th- this is the thing, and this, and I'll ask both of you to comment on this, because what happens is when then people vote, and then they say, well, I voted for X and it doesn't happen, but you don't control the state mechanisms. That's right. You Absolutely. don't control the, then it can't happen, and Republicans are very good at not letting anything happen for communities of color. Then those same communities of color feel dissatisfied and say, well, there's no point in me voting. It's a vicious cycle. That's right. How do you fight there, that vicious cycle? There are cycle? local levels on the ballot right now. Every state legislative seat is up for a vote this year in Georgia. So those state house seats, those state Senate seats that control the process here at the state Capitol yeah. right behind us, those are on the ballot right now. And so we have to encourage our voters to turn out to vote for those leaders so that we can change the face of power in this Capitol. Vote for our gubernatorial race and our secretary of state's race yeah, of is on the ballot, which controls everything yeah. when it comes to elections in this state. How do you communicate that to voters who are saying, but I voted already, I didn't get anything? 
So, you know, we've been, when we talk to voters, we talk to voters about, you know, uh, participating in the process. Of, uh, this is more about participation. This is really about power. Yes, How do we absolutely. build power? And when do you have enough power? Right. right. You have enough power when your communities are taken care of, when your schools are adequately funded, when you have access to, uh, to health care. We don't currently have that. That's and absolutely. until we actually have the kind of resources, the kind of representation that we deserve in our communities, yeah. we've got to continue to fight. And yeah. so when we talk to our voters and we're talking to people on the ground, that's what we're talking to them about. We're saying that we're at this turning point in the state of Georgia where there is a new coalition of voters that are rising up. White voters, black voters, yes. Latino Multi- voters, yes. multiracial, multi-generational voters. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, yeah. And listen, the Republicans voted for 50 years to get rid of Roe. They never got years. tired. That's right. They said, we're gonna, we'll keep voting for 50 years 50 and we'll go years. up and down from dog That's catcher right. on up till we get rid of Roe. And they never got tired. So that I guess that's the question is how do we make sure that that's right. that voters of color and that young voters never get tired? You yes. got to vote till you get what you want. You got to vote absolutely until you put enough people in it to give you what you want. Yes. That's how you get what you Joy, want. I sit in the seat that was held by Congressman John Lewis and the words that he said. This isn't the fight of a day, a month, or a year. This is the fight that's of a right. lifetime until we get the power that we need to represent our communities. Because it's not just power for power's sake. Yes. it's to get what that's we right. need to for get our get communities. What you need. That's right. The beautiful sisters in blue. Look at this. Can we get another two shot? Come on now. Congresswoman Nikema Williams, Latasha Brown, please text me with the color next time. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Up next, signs that some Republican candidates are starting to distance themselves from Trump as he apparently advocates for a civil war. More from Atlanta when we come back. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Tomorrow's Republican gubernatorial primary in Georgia is the pinnacle of the battle between Trump and Republicans attempting to chart a future without him. The race pits incumbent Governor Brian Kemp, who refused to overturn the election in 2020, against former Senator David Perdue, who Trump personally lobbied to run against Kemp. But Perdue's campaign is stalled with a recent Fox News poll showing him trailing Kemp by more than 30 points. As The New York Times notes, Perdue's impending downfall looms as the biggest electoral setback for Trump since his own defeat in the 2020 election. There's perhaps no contest in which the former president has done more to try to influence the outcome. It's proof that running on Trump's name and the big lie alone does not guarantee Republican support. Kemp's likely victory tomorrow is at least partially thanks to the Republican Governors Association, which, as The Washington Post reports, responded to Trump's vendetta tour against Republicans like Kemp by deciding to spend millions of dollars in primaries, an unusual step for an organization that typically reserves its cash for matchups against Democrats. 
The RGA invested $5 million in the race, while Purdue has struggled to raise funds to compete. And as the Post notes, a parade of Republican governors and luminaries have lined up to protect Kemp. Most strikingly, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence. Pence has been distancing himself from his former boss for months, saying that Trump was wrong for thinking that Pence could overturn the election. And tonight, he's making his biggest public break from his dear leader, campaigning for Kemp on the same night that Trump is holding a tele-rally for Purdue. But let's just be clear. Pence is not doing this solely out of concern for the future of the Republican Party. More on that after the break, live from Atlanta. Former President Mike Pence just wrapped up his campaign event in support of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. But it's also clear that Pence is setting the stage for a presidential run of his own in 2024, possibly going head to head with the president he treated with utter devotion right up until the moment the boss sent a violent mob to the Capitol to threaten and maybe hang him. As The New York Times points out, this is an emphatic break between the one-time running mates who have not spoken for nearly a year, but have also not publicly waged a proxy war until now. Pence and his, Pence, his aides say, knows full well that going down to Georgia, he knows what that represents. Joining me now, Jason Johnson, professor of journalism and politics at Morgan State University, and Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who's in Kennesaw, Georgia, the location of tonight's camp rally. I want to start with you on this. Um, we've got a little bit of sound uh, for Pence, from, uh, of Pence doing his campaign shtick for Brian Kemp. Let's play that real quick. Tomorrow's primary election comes down to this. Who is best positioned to defeat Stacey Abrams and the National Democrats that will descend on Georgia in this fall's election? Well, you know the answer. Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams four years ago, and with your support, Brian Kemp will do it all again in November of 2022. Uh, Greg, what was the energy? I mean, we can hear the cheers there. What was the energy for, for, for Pence? Because we know a lot of base Republicans wanted to hang Mike Pence. Yeah, there's hundreds of Republicans here, mostly mainstream Republicans who had endorsed Brian Kemp, who supported him, a lot of stalwarts from his 2018 campaign. Um, you know, a, a crowd of hundreds, not an overwhelming crowd, but really a crowd that you would see at uh, many of Brian Kemp's events. This was a closing rally. And the message you heard from Vice President Pence was a lot of, you know, that was kind of the summation of the, the entire message he had throughout this, this rally, which was that Governor Kemp would be more electable than David Perdue. He did not once mention Donald Trump. And you know what's interesting, uh, Jason, when I tell you every ad here is about Stacey Abrams? Yes. I mean, she's yes. pretty much the, I mean, I don't care what you're running for. See, it, it, this is the thing. When you have that kind of brand, but you have made yourself an intimate part of Georgia, they can't escape it. Right. And they can't turn her into a monster either. So I'm not surprised. Kemp says that he wants this rematch, but he also has no choice about He's this rematch. Choice, right. Exactly. And, and I, I think Abrams in particular, look, I, I was just talking to some activists and organizers in the southern part of the state. They're seeing massive early turnout. They're seeing three times as many people who turned out in 2018, 150 over what they saw in 2020, despite the voter suppression being put forward by Raffensperger, by the current governor. I think I wouldn't say they're scared yet, yeah. but if you're bringing down somebody like Mike Pence, it's because basically Kemp knows I've got to get these mainstream Republicans right. because he may lose the MAGA crowd That's once right. it comes down to And, the and fall. that is the question, Greg, is whether or not the MAGA crowd who hate Kemp because he didn't throw the election to Trump will be strong enough voters for him 
you know, produce that he might not even accept the results of the election. So how does the Republican Party then yeah, organize for Kemp? Because the other side is going to be 100 percent organized for Stacey Abrams. Jason's exactly right. I mean, the biggest fear for Governor Kemp right now is that a portion of that MAGA crowd never comes back, never comes back into the, the fold. And he's using Stacey Abrams as this sort of arch villain who can galvanize Republicans, whether they be pro-Trump Republicans or whether they be more moderate Republicans, all the channel their fury to the ballot box. And he wants he is not let up whatsoever. He is even with the polls showing him well above the 50 percent mark. Um, Brian Kemp wants to show that he has a mandate. He wants to close the door shut nail the coffin shut on David Perdue's political career tomorrow. Well, and also he doesn't want to run off. Right. He, he doesn't know how that's going to go. He doesn't want Purdue to say, like, I'm going to run as an independent. Right. Or for Purdue to keep screaming and, and pouting all the way through the fall. This is a very precarious time, honestly, for the state Republican Party. They could blow this. They could blow this on a lot of levels. And they're not just running against Stacey Abrams. They're running against basically Stacey Abrams and, and Raphael Warnock, Warnock yeah. extremely popular people. And then they still have the albatross of Herschel Walker that they're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Brian Kemp really want to run with him. So they're in a tough spot. This may not be as easy for Republicans as it was in 2018. I, I even, you know, look, the Marcus Flowers thing, it's a very, very red district. Yeah. But it is not going to be a not interesting race. Yeah. So, if, you know, all across, I mean, you're going to have now black constituents that are going to be stuck in that district with Marjorie Greene. And they got this guy who actually is appealing. He's not running an ideological campaign. He's not right. a far left wing candidate. He's like a military veteran with this great like bio right. biography. So it does feel like Republicans are setting up in Georgia for not a cakewalk. No, no. And they have done this to themselves. Yes. The voter suppression has resulted in people being more angry, more galvanized, more committed to the voting process. And that doesn't mean that the voter suppression isn't affecting people. Right. It just means that it's gotten people more and more organized. Mad. Yeah, it's made them mad. And here's the thing going into the fall. You have two relatively popular candidates. Yeah. Nobody can say anything mean about Warnock. No. Nobody can say anything mean about Stacey Abrams, who was like the Federation, you know, in Star right. Trek. Like, right. like these are people who have kept themselves connected to the state. They haven't gotten brand new. They haven't gone Hollywood. And that's yeah. going to be a real challenge for the Republicans. Uh, Greg, I guess the question then becomes in November, who has more pull here, Pence or Trump? I mean, does Pence actually have any kind of... Does he have a fan base? Like, can, if Trump decides that he hates Kemp so much that he'd rather see him lose to punish him, could Pence help at all in November? I think this is more important for Pence than it is for Trump. Trump is still by far the most popular Republican figure in Georgia, and he'll continue. He's not going to wake up on Wednesday and suddenly decide that he likes Brian Kemp after more than a year of disparaging right. him. So so Brian Kemp still has to worry about the Trump effect. Um, but the thing he might have going in his favor, and the thing I keep on hearing from, from Democratic strategists that they worry about, is that in contrast, in comparison to David Perdue, Brian Kemp, who is the first lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history, very conservative, seems a little bit more mainstream. So he could try to use that to, to pick off some more middle of the road voters by comparison to David Perdue. Let's talk a little bit of national politics here. Uh, so there's a couple things that have gone on, Jason. You've got the Ron DeSantis surge among base Republicans. So mm -hmm. Wisconsin does this straw poll. Ron DeSantis actually beats Donald Trump. So if you like Trump, but you want somebody that's Trump without a sense of humor yeah. and that's, you know, an open fascist rather than a one with a with a, with a, than a funny one, you go with DeSantis, yeah. right? You've got that happening. You've also had this statistic, which is terrifying. At least 357 sitting Republican legislators are closely in closely contested battleground states have used the power of their office to use actually used it to try to overturn the 2020 election. That accounts for 44 percent, four in 10 Republican legislatures in nine states have tried to actually overturn the election. How does that wind up affecting November? 
you see it in every single state. It, it has been a cliche my whole life, your whole life. We've all heard this is the most important. Life, but no, the that last four have been the most important elections yeah. of your life. You've got people running out. You've got secretaries of state running in Georgia. You've got the challenger to Raffensburg. You've got the, the, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. You have Republicans now who are running explicitly to overturn any election that does not elect a Republican in 2024. And you and I both know you've had people run in the past. It's like, I'm going to bring this state to. That's not that's not what these guys are saying. No. They're saying, I don't care what the vote is. Pennsylvania yes. is going to go to the Republican in 2024. I don't care what the vote is. I'm going to find those 11,000 votes right. that Donald Trump was asking for. So that is the danger that we're facing nationally this yes. year while people are still facing voter suppression by some of these uh, legislators. Greg, so I guess the question is just the tea leaves around Kemp and Raffensperger. If given the order to do it, to do it again, given the order again in 2024 to, to flip the election, do either of them say no? I would wager, yes, they would say no, because, look, they'd be in their second terms. Governor Kemp wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, wouldn't run again if he wins. Right. Um, and so they'd be freer. And certainly he owes no he owes Donald Trump no favors. Um, Raffensperger might be the most fascinating politician this entire cycle in Georgia, because a year ago, people, including me, counted him out, thought that he wouldn't even qualify. And now he's looking like he's headed at least toward a runoff against Jody Heiss, the congressman who's backed by Donald Trump. This guy was a pariah, Raffensperger, among Republicans. And now he's got a real shot uh, and maybe an outside shot of an outright victory. Who wins uh, the gubernatorial? I mean, it's going to be Kemp, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I don't no I, I think he's going to win the nominee. I mean, the nomination. He's the nomination. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to win this fall, but the other race I want to talk about real quick is Bardot and Lucy uh, McBath. Yeah. We're going to end up losing a great I, member yes. of Congress no, no matter, matter who what ends happens. Up winning that is such a shame. They are two solid candidates, yeah, yeah. and one of them is going to be uh, no longer in Congress. Jason Johnson, Greg Bluestein, great conversation. Thank you all very much. And that's it. That's tonight's readout. Thank you all for joining us from beautiful Atlanta. you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.